RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. And with me again is Tanner. Hi, Tanner. Hi, Dusty. How's it going? You know, if I was anything less than perfect, I'd complain. <laughs> so today we're talking about a game that you ran for me. Um, like our previous, like all of our games that we're talking about, it's a one-on-one game. Uh, surprise, surprise, there's two of us. And uh, you GM'd Temple of a Thousand Swords, a fantastic, fantastic adventure by a guy named Brad. I don't know if it's Kerr or Care, um, but Brad K-E-R-R. Sorry about your last name, Brad, but you wrote a hell of an adventure. And we, we, we ran that in Scarlet Heroes. And Scarlet Heroes is, is written specifically for, for one-on-one. But Tanner, this dungeon was actually written for OSE, Old School Essentials, that kind of hugely popular runaway success OSR game. Did you have any issues converting that to Scarlet Heroes? Um, absolutely none. Uh, I was... Uh... Honestly, when I was looking at the show notes um, before we started recording, I had forgotten that it was an OSE. So, I mean, my conversion was so, so minimal. Like, just just glancing at a stat block right now, we'll get to the drucks later, but, like, OSE makes it so easy. I, I guess it's just their house style, I suppose, but they make it so easy to, to uh, convert. So, like... For any given creature, it has their AC in ascending or descending, their hit dice, how many attacks they make, and that's kind of all I care about. I mean, it has their move speed and their treasure level and their alignment and how many appear and all and and like some special effects that they have. But like for Scarlet Heroes, really, you need an AC, you need hit dice, and you need how many attacks they make, and I think that's it, right? Damage, maybe? Da- yeah, and, and damage. But I mean, the damage is like it's a D6 or a D8, you know? Like, yeah, it, I hey. mean, it, it's just so, so, so pleasant. And then obviously on the Scarlet Heroes end, all you do is that when a damage die is rolled, you run it through that table and then you apply it to your solo hero or, you know, vice versa. That's again the genius of Scarlet Heroes. Like, I cannot recommend this enough. If, if you're at, listening out there and you've had this thought where you want to run old school dungeons, um, but you don't have enough people, dude. Scarlet Heroes is such the solution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Scarlet Heroes is the seedy motel that you and I meet up in every couple of weeks. <laughs> That's a great way to put. Is it. Is that going to get cut? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. That is not getting cut. Oh. All right. So my next question for you: This is so much longer than the last dungeon. So yeah. you ran uh, Temple of the Moon Priest, and it was one page. Eight rooms, generously. Eight rooms. Yeah. And and this thing's 25 pages, 19 rooms, so much longer. Like I guess my number one question for you is were you surprised we finished that in one session? That's a great question. I think a little bit. Um I I had planned on kind of making it a two-part and I I think you never really want a dungeon to be a two-parter unless you're doing like a some sort of large enormous complex that's like a sort of episodic type thing like a mega dungeon but like i think the ideal is that you get a um a dungeon done in one sitting with your group um but yeah i was a little surprised yeah like you said i'm looking at the keyed map right now and i guess there's 19 
rooms and loops and interconnectedness and stuff but i guess there there's not i'm gonna kind of go against this a little bit later with something i talk about but like there you don't have to visit every room in one of these dungeons right like you could have quote unquote completed this dungeon by visiting eight rooms and you would have you could have achieved your goal and been on your way and that would have been the session for the night but i think it just so happened that what we decided to do ended up taking you through all 19 rooms and uh yeah it was a long one it felt i'm sure it was like three and a half hours or something but in a one-on-one game that might as well have been an eight-hour day you know but you know luckily i guess we didn't have any engagements that evening and we were we were able to wrap it up and i'm glad we did i think it's way stronger than kind of leaving it and then picking it up a week or two or three later and being like well what was this again you know i don't know if you have any thoughts about that i love playing it in one session um I, I also think, how do I put this? I can't remember if it was three hours, three and a half hours, whatever. But I remember when I stood up from, from this very desk that I'm sitting at now where, where I played after the game, like my mind was a little bit blown. Like I walked away from that session thinking I had never packed so much content of a classic dungeon crawl into one session before. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, was great. It's- it's so great. <laughs> like, I think it's going to be a recurring theme with this episode is that you should just go and play this and buy it. <laughs> this adventure is so good. Yeah. So, do you think we would have still finished in one session if we weren't playing one on one? I think it's hard to say. I think it depends on the group. If we had a group that was um, as inquisitive and thorough and engaged as you were, if we had like four or five players, I don't think so. But I, I think for me at least a common thing with home groups is that maybe you have one or two players like you dusty and then we have one person who's kind of there for the social aspect and they go go with the flow and don't do a ton of decision making and then maybe you have one guy who's there for the combat the the loot and all that stuff so i think it would have been possible it definitely would have been much much longer than three and a half hours or whatever this this one ended up being um and i think that's i mean that's something that speaks to the uh this the uh the strength of one-on-one gaming not only do you get more games in just because it's easier to schedule one-on-one but you get through more stuff because the game itself goes faster you know so if you have a stack of modules that you really want to get through or ideas for world building campaigns that you really want to get through one-on-one gaming is the fastest way to do it and i think a great way to play test stuff too but but i'm getting ahead of myself that, that's me thinking about the uh the saint patty's day dungeon the the sort of arc with these old school games with you and I is that we're trying to find a solution for mapping and exploration. Um, and this one was a very, I mean, it's a pretty complex dungeon, but we ran it all theater of the mind again, just like we did temple of the moon priests. Um, and this was a, a like we said, a way bigger dungeon than temple of the moon priests. Um, did you have any issues with that? I'm I'm wondering if that was the best way to approach that if we were to do it again. I didn't have any issues with it at all. And in fact, I, I think using the map would have hurt. I, I love this adventure. The adventure's so good. And it was so good that the day after I like bought and read the adventure myself just to see like what you had done with it. <laughs> and the included map is such a letdown. I like I love the adventure so much. But I was so glad we were doing theater of the mind because I pictured this like huge epic complex 
and the dungeon feels kind of small when you look at it on a map. Like it, I feel like a, like a crappy tourist, like the guy who goes to, I don't know, wherever the white house. And it's like, I thought it'd be bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and those uh, are 10 foot squares on the map. I'll have, you know, fair enough, but it still, it still felt small when I looked at it and the map didn't feel very evocative. So I think theater of the mind was great. I, I think the map would have hurt my enjoyment. I think you and I both did something different. When I was taking notes, I would write down the name of the room and you would give me the name of the room. And I didn't even try to map it. If I wanted to go back somewhere, I would just be like, Tanner, I want to go back to the egg room. Yeah. And yeah, that's a good way to do it. So yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a well keyed dungeon that it's like room T4, the oyster garden. And so I would say you, this is the oyster garden, blah, 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 blah. And I guess that, that can be kind of a little, um, artificial or maybe not super immersive but boy does it aid play you know when you're trying to just associate a room with who did i talk to where was that thing uh oh yeah oyster garden and like sure you could have written down uh the dark and flooded dripping cavern uh, but spoiler alert there's a lot of those in here and so i would have had to go and be like what oh he's talking about the oyster garden and then you know go from there so like why not cut out that confusion and just make a clear tool of communication between the two of us I don't think it hurt immersion any more than, and in fact, probably a lot less than me trying to map it with graph paper. (laughs) Yep. Yep. That would have killed immersion because then we would have to stop the game and have an entire out of game conversation. How big is this room again? So wait, am I starting on this square or this square? Am I up one? Oh, I'm not up one. Oh, there's a diagonal passage. Oh, now I'm screwed. Like we'd have to completely stop the game. So I think naming the room, like giving it a a name, I think it helped with the immersion because it acknowledges that this place has locations so that I can navigate it. Yeah. But it doesn't acknowledge the place has navigations or sorry, has has locations that I need to navigate so much that we stop. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it's not the most, um, like the dungeon looking at the layout now it's kind of like a ring and then there's another ring on the inside and then a circular room on the side and then irregularly shaped rooms on the outside and all of those are what make it a good dungeon but also just would have been a real pain in the ass to map it if we were doing graph paper style right absolutely yeah so so playing remotely playing you know on video with each other not having to share a screen not having to do a virtual tabletop not worrying about graph paper just naming the rooms it made it so easy um to to, to play so this is kind of an avant-garde like high concept dungeon i didn't realize until i read the write-up on it as i was pulling together the show notes that the dungeon was kind of based on on tarot cards or a tarot deck like i didn't put that together uh, according to a blurb, I think I saw on drive through RPG. Yes. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So it's this like whole avant-garde high concept thing. Did we like that? I, yeah, I did. Um, I mean the, the, so the, the game, the module is called temple of a thousand swords. Even from the first setup is that there's like this cave structure that is feeding into a river and thousands and thousands of swords are pouring out of it and running the river red with rust. And the mayor is asking you to go figure out what the hell's going on. And like, 
that how is that for a call to adventure right like you it's immediately evocative and you're like i need to see what the heck is going on in here you know there's a line that you said at the beginning of the adventure and i don't know if you said it or if brad care wrote it but the line was the river is lousy with swords and i <laughs> loved that line like the river's lousy with swords and i i've gone fishing i've i've done spin casting where you actually get in the water and you wade upstream and you see these beautiful scenic things but i mean always for me i'm a bit of a I don't know. I'm not an outdoorsman. Let's put it that way. So there's always this moment when I'm in my Keens and I've got my, my rod and reel and my tackle and my vest and all that. And I go to jump in the water. There's this moment of like, am I going to land on a weird rock? Am I going to like snap my ankle? Like I can't see the bottom of this, of this water and I'm going to step in there. And then once you're in there, you can kind of feel your way around and, and wait upstream. But the idea of a river being lousy with swords as someone who spent so much time fishing is terrifying. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a hazard in that first sort of passageway too. Um, yeah, I mean it's awesome. It, I, so like the adventure setup, I guess we're gonna go into a little bit of spoilery. If you're a player and you want your GM to run this and it sounds cool, give it to your GM. But if you're a GM thinking about running it, I guess we're just gonna talk about sort of specific features from here on out. So the setup is that. There's a god of swords who has an enslaved knight who's forging swords forever, but also this structure is occupied by disgusting duck people and merfolk, and the duck people are trying to hatch a giant egg, but also there's the ghost of the previous sword lord here. And all this stuff sounds so stupid, but when you're in the adventure, it's like, yeah, that all sounds cool. Like it, like it kind of is revealed to you piece you know piecemeal in a way that feels natural and not overwhelming as if i were to just give you a paragraph of what's happening in this dungeon right yeah it feels like there's layers of history and it's it's one of those things where a bunch of things suddenly happen at once like this temple stood for a long time with this forgotten sword god and a couple of ghosts wandering it for a long time and then all of a sudden these ducks and these bird people come in and then all of a sudden the the sword lord gets gets killed by a guy with a spear and then all of a sudden the sword the sword god um enslaves it's it's like all these things kind of happen at once and it goes from being like nothing's happening to something and anyone who's ever like had a job been in a classroom like those chains of events where everything's fine and then all of a sudden boom 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 chaos is what it felt like to me and it was so fun to get in the middle of that yeah and, and it's really cool because um it's the sign of a good dungeon that it has a history that's not necessarily what it is now. You know, I love when a dungeon is okay, there's orcs or goblins or giant spiders here right now, but this used to be another place. And in between now and then, it was also used for that. Like adding those layers of history just helps with the sort of um, immersion and the richness of the setting. It makes it really three dimensional for what could be a very no pun intended two-dimensional type of dungeon you know like just adding that element of time and what time has done and changed this place with like that goes so far i think so speaking of the like the content of the dungeons you've talked in the past you've talked to me you mentioned i think on one of the last two shows about a checklist of what makes a great dungeon why don't you spend a minute and actually expound on that? Like, like, what is, is there a checklist that people generally agree on? Is this your checklist and, and what is your checklist? 
so these are criteria that matter to me you know this is this is a, a very subjective thing um but and i'm not going to take credit for these i've read these on some osr blogs i wish i could credit them maybe maybe if i do and i can find it you can put it in, in the show notes but um there's very smart people who have thought a long time about uh what makes a good dungeon and i am just reading and parroting their thoughts for the most part so these are the things top four things that make a good dungeon all right number one multiple factions there were duck people in here and there were merfolk people and there were the sort of indifferent sword god people um and all those things just add chaos and another like i said another layer on top of what this would be what would normally be a, a pretty straightforward thing um checklist number two things to talk to and things to fight so we'll get into that a little bit later but um you know it's not only meeting every foe with the point of your sword it's it's uh parlaying navigating trying to fool trick people sneak past people things like actual characters to talk to in a dungeon it doesn't have to be everybody but a good dungeon will have somebody to talk to in it number three um a trap or a item or a puzzle to interact with and to mess with um this one you didn't really engage with but i'm glad it was here there was the magic anvil that whatever you put on it and hit with a hammer would turn it into a sword made of that thing and like those kind of things to play with you know um it's just that's just not something you can get in video games right like it, it's one of those things that um just immediately starts your players minds uh the wheels in their mind turning and then um, number four, something you should probably run from, um, something in the dungeon that you that you can't talk to, that you can't fight, that maybe you can't even sneak past, but when it shows up, you should leave. And it creates a, a it, it turns it from kind of a fun house into like, a, oh yeah, this is a hostile environment. So for that, luckily it didn't hatch for you, but that's the giant duck egg that uh, they were trying to hatch. If that were to hatch, it would have been a very... Um, almost like Mr. X from Resident Evil, right? It chases you around and it's always around the corner and it's there to mess with you. So yeah, if you're trying to make a good dungeon, multiple factions, things to talk to, things to fight, an item, a trap, or a puzzle to interact with and mess around with, and uh, something that you should probably run from. I think those things being in a dungeon means that there's a lot of thought put into it. Hmm. I don't consistently do all of this. Yeah, and I mean, we'll we'll uh, get to some more dungeons later that um, that we ran, and I'd like you to keep me honest and check me against this when that time comes, when we get to those ones and see if I succeeded. <laughs> I'm going to have to like, copy and paste the section of the show notes to other dungeons and, and do that accountability check. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is your second time playing Bellman as well. Do you feel like you broke him in like a good pair of boots? What was it like uh, playing him for a second time in a new scenario? Bellman felt like an old friend. I really think Temple of the Moon Priests cemented Bellman's personality for me. Um, and this dungeon, I just got to be him. And having the picture of, of I, I didn't look up the pronunciation between the last podcast and this podcast, Bella Shabellic from Raiders of the Lost Ark, having him in my head as kind of a template and then doing my own thing from there. Uh, it was a great way to get invested with Bellman in that first one. And by this one, putting on Bellman was like putting on a favorite shirt. Like I really love Bellman. I, I don't know if I want to play him more. I think Bellman's kind of done his thing and Bellman was super fun. I, I love being 
Bellman. And Bellman, who doesn't love people but has a soft spot for animals, completely befriended the, the, the drug. And I was picturing, yes, and you you messed up. You didn't really mess up. But you described the duck people as being like Howard the Duck but gross. Yeah. And you said Howard the Duck but gross. But I ignored the but gross oh, I and see. fell in love with the drug. And I wanted to be friends with the drug. And I was nice to the drug. And the drug were nice to me. And I got good reaction roles. And it was just so much fun to have friends in a dungeon. Yeah. And it, it was friends. So first of all, but gross. Maybe I should have showed you the picture that's in the uh, adventure here. But it's a duck man wearing a loincloth with a sword. And he has nipples. That's, you know, a duck with nipples. You can't trust that. But um yes. He's gross. Uh, but the, uh, the, yeah, like you said, it's nice to have friends in a dungeon, but not friends who will do the dungeon for you. Right. They were kind of doing their own thing, but they were friendly with you and they were friendly with you to the point of saying, I mean, they had a line, right? Like they weren't going to let you past that nest area from where they were coming to the tunnels from. So it's always good when um, an NPC kind of has the agency to say no to a player, even if they are friendly, you know? Yeah. Anything to add about the, the duck people? I feel like I could, I could sense that line. Like you did a good job portraying the drug and I could tell where the line was. And I just, I liked the drug. So I was going to be polite and not go over the line. Um, but I also think it's worth talking about reaction roles. Like at the, sure. The other thing I remember is is when we talked immediately after the dungeon, immediately like before we hung up, you were like, "Man, you got some crazy reaction rolls." Yeah, so this is a uh, a mechanic that's been in D anD D for a long time, but it's something I like using, and I, I brought it into my five E D anD D games as well. But basically, it's a two D six table, <clears throat> and like five to eight or whatever the middle of the bell curve is that things are indifferent or cautious to you. If you roll really low on that bell curve, they're immediately openly hostile. And if you roll high on that bell curve, get a, like a 10, 11, 12, they're friendly to you. I think on your first Druck encounter, you I rolled a 12 for you. So they were immediately friendly. And then I think you did something again where I called for another one because you were kind of testing the line with them. So I, I rolled another reaction roll. And I think you got either an 11 or 12 on that one as well. So... Just this fact that it's a it's a GM tool, right? It's something in my toolbox that I can pull out when appropriate and apply to the right situation. It made Temple of a Thousand Swords unique to our table. Like, that is not what someone else's game was going to be if they were to use that. And that's awesome. I love that. And you, you said something, again, as we were kind of doing the postmortem immediately after playing, where you said something, and it very much had the weight of a quote. So I don't think this is your original <laughs> thought, but... You said something along the lines of there's three storytellers at the table, the players, the GM, and the dice. Yes. And that is a quote, and I don't remember who it's from. I, I'm sorry. But but I love it, and it's so true. Um, part of why I struggle with, with some systems, I don't even want to get into which ones, is they don't give the dice their due. They don't, they don't impose limitations on the characters. And I think it's limitations where all the creativity comes from. Like my most creative solutions at work are where I have the most constraints and you have to operate within those. constraints. if you have no constraints, then you have no reason to, to be creative or get forced into a box or figure something novel out. And I think that's like all human arts and crafts too, right? Like, 
you know, the size of the canvas determines what the composition of your painting is going to be. The wood you're working with is going to determine what kind of cabinet you can make out of it, you know? So like having these constraints and these, but like you got to use them to your advantage, right? You can't look at a reaction roll as being a, Oh, he rolled a 12. He ruined my adventure. Now we can just talk to all the duck people, but like you have to use that as saying, okay, boom, that's a story that's that's an improv prompt now from the audience saying oh actually the duck people are going to be super nice to bellman and then that's on me and you to figure out okay wh- why <laughs> and how to role play that and the story <laughs> that comes from that so like the fact that I, I think truly as a gm especially if you're running for if you're running a pre-made adventure you have to have something in it that surprises you too as the gm at least i do i should say i really value that kind of stuff that it makes me feel like the player at the table rather than the guy just reading the descriptions of the rooms. Right. Like I have to, it it helps uh, jog my mind and get me engaged with the fiction too. When I get these wild prompts that come from a reaction role or any other type of, uh, of GM tool that you can make. And that's again, my compliment to you is when I'm DMing, if something throws me for a loop, I'll actually say, give me a minute. I wasn't thinking about that. (laughs) <laughs> but you never break that GM character, like that persona. You just roll with it beautifully. You you had like no hesitation when I befriended the drug. But well, I, I think that's that's speaking to the systems that I'm falling back on, right? It's not like I mean, I've run very narrative heavy mechanics light games before. And when my players do something unexpected, like we want to kill the ambassador, that's our plan. So I've had moments where I'd have to be like, okay, can I get five, 10 minutes while I figure out what the rest of our session and campaign is going to be while you guys set that into motion. But the fact that I have this underlying sort of mechanical apparatus to fall back on this, um, this procedure to go through like that gives me so much more of a scaffold to stand on when things, you know, go not wrong, but unexpected directions. And I love that. I don't get to choose to befriend the drug. I get to choose (laughs) to try. Yes. To befriend the drug. Yes. And there's something about that and about storytelling where the dice throw you curveballs. That's just fun for both of us. We're both of us are very much improving in any given moment. Improv in a game like this is not just up to the GM. And people have this association that dungeon crawls are these dry, procedural, boring types of things. But like this was like one of the more engaging stories that has happened at the table in any game I've played, you know? I love I, I think I love dungeon crawls now. Like before I I thought I never wanted to be constrained to a dungeon, but I think I feel about it now like Man, if I'm playing an open world game like Skyrim, there's just too much. There's too many places to go, and I don't feel like I can get get through it or finish it. There's no sense of completion. Whereas being in a dungeon, um, it's kind of like a locked door mystery. Like you have to have those walls around the dungeon to keep you somewhere to to engage with the story in that area, and then you, you're done. I, th- I think it's an I think it's a narrative imposition to say you're in this dungeon. But a dungeon is very much a place where story can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one final thing that I wanted to compliment and touch on um, that was awesome in this adventure as written was the the magic items that were in it. So there were kind of 
two main ones that we encountered. One of them was the Nine of Swords, which was broken up into nine pieces that were scattered throughout the dungeon. And they were hidden in such a way that they were obvious and memorable when you saw them, but they weren't you wouldn't necessarily go for them if you didn't know what you were looking for, you know, and they gave you a reason to explore all these dungeons. So there's a certain point where you realize, Oh, I want to collect the nine of swords. And then we backtracked through rooms and it was awesome. And then it brought you into new rooms and gave you kind of a new sub goal as you were exploring the the dungeon. What'd you think of that? I love scavenger it. hunts. Yeah. If you're listening at home, you might be like, Oh my God, you got to find nine of something. And I've got to say, I actually found that to be a relief because it meant that none of them were particularly well hidden. If you have to find one of something in a dungeon, then I have a sinking feeling like, Oh God, it's going to be a needle in a haystack. I've got God knows how many rooms to look for one thing. Right. But with nine things to look for, they don't have to be particularly well hidden and you're constantly finding stuff. And some, some are harder than others. Some you're like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure it's in that chest under that water. And now I've got to figure out how to get to it. Like they don't have to all be super well hidden. So I I found it. Gosh, what a relief to find (laughs) nine things versus one needle in a haystack. Yeah. And then the, uh, the one, the coolest uh, magic item that I gave you from this adventure that you never used the door sword. Yes. uh, Such a great piece of loot. Uh, You kill something. And so we should say, like, I, I had a conversation with the, the, we're saying like, like sword Lord and God, sword God. And they are two different people to be clear. I had a conversation with the sword God, the figure who was worshiped to, who created the anvil and, and all this. And I could have taken the nine of swords out of that dungeon with me. Right. But the reason the door sword even came up was I forget exactly what the obligation was, but somehow the nine of swords had some obligation where you had to kill so many things a day. Yes. I, I believe that you had to kill like nine creatures within a week or something like that to activate it. To, I, I, yeah. It's you had to do a lot of murder with it. And I love the idea of Bellman just being like, no, no one's going to tell me what to do. And that's his <laughs> reason for just like not taking like, like, Bellman left the nine of swords with the druck. Yeah. The, the nine of swords in the fiction is kind of like a, it's a nine bladed sword that turns you kind of into a blunder. So Bellman was like, yeah, these, these drucks will need it more than I do. <laughs> right. So I left the, and that's what I think made you be like, okay, well there, there is this sword that you do get to leave here with. And it's this door sword where if I kill a creature, I can say the name of a place and then like a staircase or some stairs appears in the wound that I made where I guess like, like Han Solo cutting open the Tauntaun. Yeah. You go through a corpse. It's very weird. Yes. It's weird, but it's amazing. And I thought, Oh man, I can use this to like teleport somewhere. What a great get out of jail free card. And I just never used it. (laughs) I went through all of hideous daylight and never used the sword of doors. Well, I'm wondering, that might speak to the structure of Hideous Daylight, too. Once we get to that, we'll talk about that. But also, it's, we talk about Skyrim so much. I think it's so interesting. But the the door sword is like a Skyrim potion in that it is a consumable. It works once. And, and it turns back into a regular sword. It doesn't disappear, but the the staircase, the magical portal to where you need to go effect is a one-time use only. And I feel like those are hard to implement 
in role playing games because I think there is this uh this sort of instinct to want to hoard that just in case you really need it, you know. But um I don't think it would be more interesting if you could do that once a week or something, you know. So maybe the the solution for that is if you're going to have these quote consumable magic items, just give your players enough of them that they get the message that oh I have a lot of these. I should start playing with them instead of giving them one and, and treating them as sacred. At least that's been sort of my uh, experience in the past in more sort of high magic games like D&D 5e or whatever. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I've got several. And as a kid, I didn't use stickers. That's a weird thing to say. But I'd get stickers and I'd hoard them. They were special. I didn't want to use my stickers. I've had arguments with my friends about this in the past, like, six months <laughs> so <laughs> that's wild we've not talked about this yeah no my daughter my 10 year old daughter uses the hell out of her stickers you hand her a pack of stickers and they're going to be everywhere in two shakes of, of a lamb's tail like like stickers will be all over the place and i think it's wonderful that she uses her stickers i regret not using my stickers and here's my second analogy my favorite early podcast when podcasting still felt quite young to me in like 2000, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 was the stone cold Steve Austin podcast. I've quit listening. I haven't listened to it in years. I just kind of started listening to audiobooks instead, but I love the stone cold podcast. And I think it's probably still a great podcast. I think stone cold's a surprisingly good interviewer and he compares a lot of stuff in life to wrestling. And one of the things that he said about wrestling is you can't hang on to your special moves for late in the match. And the way he phrased it was, and I might bleep this, um, he would tell the young guys, get your shit in. Like, start the wrestling match and then get your shit in. Like, yeah. do, do your moves, do your shtick, do your thing, get it in. Because if you wait, it won't happen. Yep. And I wish I had used the sticker and I wish I had gotten my shit in. This is just for Dusty, but I'll show you my current water bottle. It's covered with Doom stickers and, and other music stickers. So I'm definitely on a uh, I'm I'm a use your stickers guy. So everybody chime in on the comments. Do you use your stickers or do you do you hoard your stickers? I, I think that is a huge personality test type question. Yeah. Glass half empty, glass half full. That's passe. Use your stickers or keep your stickers. Yep. So in conclusion, we just cannot recommend Temple of a Thousand Swords enough. I bet it would be fun with a group. It was so fun one-on-one. -on -one. It was evocative. There was a lot of content. And it was so immersive to me. Um, awesome dungeon. Super fun to play. Tanner, super fun to run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about how, you know, a good uh, dungeon should be a game for the GM, too. And this certainly one was one. It was awesome. In fact, I, I'm going to say I also own a physical copy of this. I will run this dungeon again for another group or another player. That's how good it is. I can guarantee no higher recommendation. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.